Hello and welcome to Z3 News. I'm James Bailey and today is Thursday, June 4th, 2020. And today I'm going to be presenting historical evidence supporting what I've been presenting over the past few weeks, which is scriptural and historical evidence showing that Rome is behind all the attacks on our nation today. Rome is the instigator behind so much of the trouble that's happening in the world today, as they are the kingdom that the prophet Daniel saw in the legs and feet of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream, revealing the final kingdoms of this age prior to the return of the Lord. So I have done a lot of work to prove and connect all the dots to show beyond any reasonable doubt, that Rome is the culprit. They are the ones behind the trouble that we're seeing in our land today. And specifically, I'm referring to the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit organization, because as of the year 1814, they finally succeeded in completing their horrible plan to reinstate themselves in a position of power over the popes of Rome, and they have been in that position ever since. And so when we talk about Rome, I'm specifically referring to the Jesuits, because there is this man who rules over the Jesuits called the Superior General, who is also known as the Black Pope, because he wears black garments. But it is him who rules over the Pope that we see, the public figure, Pope who, by the way, now today, for the first time in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, we now have a Jesuit pope in Pope Francis. Now, back in 1814, when they completed their hostile takeover of the Vatican, they would never have openly displayed Jesuit popes in the Vatican because they knew there was so much animosity in the world directed toward them because of all the trouble they had caused in nation after nation. And as I mentioned in the previous program, they had been expelled from 83 nations, some of those more than one time. But they had been expelled because of their ongoing attempts to overthrow the governments of the nations where they were working as quote-unquote missionaries. These are not the kind of missionaries that we typically think of because these missionaries persecute Christians and overthrow governments and assassinate kings, and they think they're doing all of that for the greater glory of God. That's the motto of the Jesuit organization. Yet today, they go on the internet and write articles explaining how the poor Jesuits have been so misunderstood and so falsely accused These poor Jesuits are just victims of such unfair treatment, and it really makes my blood boil to read that. And there's so many Jesuit books have been written about history where they have purposely revised and rewritten history, including every history textbook that's used in the American public school system, which is why none of us have ever heard the truth about what's really happening in the world or what really happened in the past. And so I've been going back through history and re-educating myself with the truth and the knowledge of what was behind, of who was behind these ongoing wars in Europe that just went on for 
century after century to the point where the people were completely worn out by all these wars of religion that killed millions of people. And as soon as one war would die down, it wouldn't be very long before another would start up. And this has been going on for over 2,000 years. Rome has been persecuting Christians and Jews and anyone else who's not under their thumb, which is what they call a heretic. But they've been killing Christians back in the early days of Rome for entertainment purposes and Jews. It's been a nonstop onslaught of persecution coming from Rome. They have been the primary vehicle through which Satan has been implementing his plans on planet Earth. But you know, if it wasn't bad enough to be under attack by this foreign enemy in our land, working through the agencies of our federal government, which is just mind-boggling, but yet if you study the facts of history and connect the dots, as I've been working to do, you'll begin to understand that our government is controlled by Rome and has been for decades. And that's the reason why we see such crazy actions by the CIA, the NSA, the FBI. But as if all that wasn't enough already to make matters even worse, the American people are so confused and deceived about what's happening. It's like getting punched in the face and you can't even see who it is that's hitting you. You can't possibly swing back. And so that makes it even worse. I mean, at least we can begin to understand the truth about what's happening and begin to expose the the harlots who are uh, selling themselves out to betray each and every one of us. At least we can begin to recognize what they're up to and call them out and expose their lies and not doing what I saw in my dream where the American people were listening intently to every word from the government and from the news media and believing all the lies and putting all their hope in those things, which were nothing more than lies. And so what I'm trying to do is share the facts of history as I've been digging for them so that I can help as many people as possible begin to understand what we're dealing with, and then others can pick it up from there and share the same warnings until we can begin to wake up as a, as a church, as a people, as a nation. Because the church leaders, unfortunately, our church leaders that we rely on to help give us guidance in these matters, they attended the same schools growing up that we did. So they don't know either. They've been lied to, too. It's just not been on our radar. We've been living like in a bubble. It's kind of like that movie, The Matrix, where they had everyone living in a false reality. But there is a true reality that you can come out of that matrix and begin to rise above it and not be deceived by it another minute. And so what I've done is I've gone back, focusing on this period from 1773 to 1815, because it was during that time that the Jesuits were suppressed by the Roman Catholic Pope, and that was Pope Clement XIV. And he didn't want to do it, but he had no choice because the Jesuits were completely wrecking the Catholic Church by taking away their biggest supporters, who were threatening to depart, part ways with the Vatican because they could not allow 
this nonsense to continue, their lives were in danger because of these Jesuits. But what happened was, the Jesuits, when they were ordered to disband, in this suppression is what it's called, when they were ordered to do so, they disregarded the orders. This very group who has claimed to serve the Pope in whatever the Pope commands because they claim that he is the vicar of Christ, the voice of God on earth, the great mediator, the great bridge between God and man. But yet, when the Pope gave this decree, they completely disregarded it, and they went into retreat areas. They went into areas where the the papal decrees were not regarded, not obeyed, not implemented, And so they found refuge in certain places, and one of those was in Bavaria, which is now part of modern-day Germany. And so it was there at a university in Ingolstadt, Germany, that the Jesuits put together a plan to counterattack and regain control over the Vatican. And by 1814, they succeeded in their plan but at the cost of millions of lives. And I believe this is one of the most important periods of time in history for us to understand, because what happened was, as they came out of this, as they took control over the Vatican, when they were reinstated in 1814, they were large and in charge and more dangerous than ever before. As President John Adams said, the world entered into darkness in 1814 when the Jesuits were reinstated. Because what happened right after that was they set their sights on the United States of America. We became their primary target, their next venture. And our nation has been under attack by the Jesuits ever since, but I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to today focus on this story of what happened during this time period, because if we can just understand this, we can eliminate all the confusion about all these other people who are uh, identified as the ones who are calling the shots and ruling the world. And As I share this story, you're going to see that, no, it's not the Rothschilds. They're not the ones behind it. They are just servants of the Pope. They are just servants of the Jesuits. They have been carrying out the Jesuit plan, participating as a harlot, participating as one who betrays their own country. And it was because of their harlotry and their betrayal of their own people that Approximately 9 million people died in the wars fought during 1789 to 1815. And one of the nations that suffered as much as any other during that time was the Rothschilds' home country of Germany, as they were from the city of Frankfurt in modern-day Germany. But I'm going to share this story because it shows that the Rothschilds, all they did was help implement the plan that was drawn up by the Jesuits. And they did so so that they could enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. And as I go through this plan, the other part of it that you're going to see is the story of the Illuminati, because the Illuminati was completely created by the Jesuits. In fact, 
the founder, Adam Weishaupt, was himself a Jesuit. And that is a proven fact that I'm going to share the details proving that. And so the reason why I believe this story is so important is because it shows you can forget about all these other groups. They're not the ones. It's not the Rothschilds. It's not the Illuminati. There are lots of front groups operating under lots of different names. But if you trace it back to the source, it always comes back to the same one. And it's always Rome. And it's always the Jesuits. And so... We don't need to be confused about that any longer. We don't need to be looking at China. We don't need to be considering Antifa. We don't need to be considering any of these groups, any of these alias names, any of these front groups. We need to zero in on the true culprits and begin to expose them openly, which is the very thing that they work so hard to prevent. And that is our first step in fighting back. Because the true purpose for all these other front groups is to deflect our attention away from them so that nobody talks about them, nobody even suspects them. They're completely hidden from sight. In fact, the irony of this story is that the very name, the Rothschild name in German means Rothschild, means red shield. And the red shield was carried by the Roman soldiers for centuries. It was the shield that deflected the attacks of the enemies of Rome. They protected the empire behind the red shield. And that's what the Rothschilds have done for the past 200 years. They have been the front group. Their name is out there where everyone can see them. And so everyone thinks they're the ones behind it. But they're not. They're just deflecting our attention to them so that we don't go any further and look behind the shield. In fact, in Frankfurt, Germany, the Rothschild family had their own business and their sign out front was a red shield and on the shield was a gold eagle. And that gold eagle is the symbol of Rome. And so there has been this strong connection between the Rothschilds and Rome from the very beginning. And even the city where Mayor Amschel Rothschild was born and raised, the city of Frankfurt, was an imperial city, which means that city was under the direct control of the Holy Roman Empire. It was not like other cities that were under the control of local sovereigns. And so everything about the Rothschilds has been all about Rome from the very start. And it continues to this day. So when we look at them, we need to know who we're dealing with. And we need to understand that they're not the ones who made themselves wealthy. All they did was implement the plan given to them by the Jesuits. You know, the Rothschilds today are known as the founding fathers of international finance. And it's just not true because all they did was implement what had been done in the past. There was a group that was started during the Crusades, called the Knights Templar. And, like the Jesuits, they were a military organization. And, like the Jesuits, they were suppressed by the Pope. The Pope eventually turned on them in the year 1309, and they were suppressed, and they had to flee. And where they fled was England and Scotland, because that was the base of operations where they had set up from the beginning. 
but it was the Templars who were the founding fathers of international finance. They were the first ones to set up international banking, and that goes all the way back to the year 1128. They set up bases in London and in Scotland where people could come and uh, deposit their gold, their silver, their riches, because during those times, many people were traveling to the Middle East to participate, to be a part of the Pope's crusades against Jerusalem, against the Muslims of the Middle East. And even though Jerusalem had been conquered by the year 1099, many people still traveled there to participate and wanted to be a part of what was happening. But it wasn't safe in those days to travel with all your money. There were bandits along the way and long stretches where they could not possibly defend themselves. And so what they would do is they deposit their money with the Templars in London or Scotland or some other place near home, and then they would travel. They would receive a receipt for their deposit, and then they would travel to Jerusalem, and the Templars there would give them their money. And so there they had a banking system established, and they were the ones that came up with all this. And it was a very big deal at the time. In fact, the Templars were generating nearly a billion dollars in equivalent money per year in revenues, and they were able to acquire much land and property, and they became very wealthy over the course of the next nearly 200 years. And so the Templars accumulated so much wealth over that period of time that they began to lend money to sovereign nations, because during those days, there were ongoing wars, and the kings and queens of the nations needed to find a way to pay for all their wars, and so they borrowed money from the Templars. But what happened was, the king of France, Philip IV, in the year 1309, realized that he didn't have a way of repaying the great sum of money that he owed the Templars, so he came up with Plan B, which was to have the Templars arrested and tortured until they would confess to be criminals and then had them burned at the stake. At least some of their leaders were burned at the stake. And he had this king of France, Philip IV, had so much influence over the Roman Pope at that time that he was able to get the Pope to agree with him to turn against the Templars, and he did. And so, very much like what happened to the Jesuits, the Templars had to flee, and they fled back to where they had started, the first bases they established, which were in England and Scotland. And that was the origins of the Freemasons, because during these times when these knights were fighting in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, and protecting the travelers from bandits along the way, they won the hearts and minds of the people as men of honor and chivalry, and they developed relationships with many of the civilians who had come to Jerusalem, and they specifically formed relationships with many who worked as Masons because the Templars had a vision that one day they wanted to rebuild Solomon's Temple on the Temple Mound. In fact, the very building where they operated from, which was assigned to them by the king, the Pope's appointed king over Jerusalem, was the Muslim, former Muslim dome there, 
that they believed was built on the precise spot where Solomon's temple stood. And so this was always their vision and their goal. And at one point, they were even called the Knights of Solomon's Temple and with variations of their name along those lines. But it was over time just shortened to the Knights Templar. It's all about the temple. It's all about rebuilding the temple. And it's a great sounding idea that has a lot of appeal to people that they can feel like their life is, uh, has some great significance, that they're doing something for God. But yet there's a huge problem with that vision because it's not God's vision because God has already completed everything he ever needed to do and there's no longer any need for sacrificing animals in the payment for the payment of our sins because he made the sacrifice by shedding his own blood once and for all and that covers it for all the course of human history the blood of the Messiah has taken care of it there's no longer any need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But yet, even to this very day, many people have a vision of rebuilding that temple, and specifically, the Roman Catholic Church has a view to rebuild that temple. And it will be rebuilt because we're told in the Scriptures that the man of sin, the Antichrist, will go into the temple And it's there that he will establish his throne as he seeks to exalt himself to rule from Mount Zion, exalting himself above the throne of God, which is the very quote from Satan himself in Isaiah chapter 14. And that event is called the abomination that brings desolation. It was quoted by the prophet Daniel, and Jesus quoted it too in Matthew chapter 24. And so it's going to happen, and that event will trigger the wrath of God to be unleashed on planet Earth, and that is what we call the Great Tribulation. But thank God that He's already promised that His people are not appointed unto wrath. His wrath is not aimed at His own people, but at those who have tried over the centuries to exalt themselves above His throne by seeking to do things their own way, to make themselves right in their own sight, to make themselves like God. But getting back to the story, what happened was the Templars had to run for their lives. But those who got away, they fled back to England and Scotland, and they had to take cover, and they had to find places of hiding. And so they found places of refuge among the very people who had come to idolize them and support them, and they put them up and secretly gave them food and lodging. And this was the start of what's called the Masonic Lodges. These people called themselves the Masons. And the Knights could no longer operate openly as Knights Templar, so they also became part of these Freemasons. They operated at first under the name of the Free and Accepted Masons, but was later shortened to Freemasons. And so that's how Freemasonry began. And Freemasonry is a big part of the story that I'm sharing today because the Jesuits, when they found themselves in this similar place as the Knights Templar, on the run and hiding and having to operate under a different name, and they needed someone to support them to accomplish what they wanted to do. They needed someone to implement the plan that they came up with. 
And this plan called for two things. Number one was people to implement it, people to make it happen. And number two, their plan required money because it takes money to implement a war, to overthrow a government, to pay for the people to do the work. And so this is the story of the Jesuits, how they pulled this plan off. They came up with a twofold plan. Number one, they created the Illuminati, whose purpose was to recruit the people. And number two, they took their plans to the money barons to raise the money to pay for what they wanted to do. And that's where the Rothschilds come into play. The Rothschilds at that time had no money of their own, but Mayor Amschel Rothschild had developed a close friendship with one of his clients, whose name was Prince Wilhelm, and his title was the Elector of Hesse-Cassel. Now, Hesse was a region within the Holy Roman Empire, and Prince Wilhelm's father was like the governor over that region. His position was actually called the Landgrave, but it was like a governor. And so, Mayor Amschel Rothschild had a close friendship with this man because he and his father had a rare coin business. The Rothschild's family business was in dealing in rare coins, and Prince Wilhelm was one of their best clients. And so, over those years, Mayor Amschel Rothschild would call on Prince Wilhelm regarding his coins. And by the year 1769, when he was Mayor, Mayor Rothschild was 25 years old, and Prince Wilhelm was just one year older, 26, so they were very close in age, their friendship had developed to the point where Prince Wilhelm trusted Mayor enough to appoint him in a position that was called the court Jew, because the Rothschild family was Jewish, and that gave them a great advantage in these relationships that they had with people of nobility, because for hundreds of years, there had been this tradition in place that the people of nobility would appoint a Jewish person to handle their finances, because the Roman Catholic Church had put in place canon laws forbidding charging interest on lending money. And so, anyone who was under the submission of the Pope was not allowed to charge interest on any loans that they made. But the Jewish people were not under the Pope, and so that was a way of working around the canon law and doing it in a way that was quote-unquote legal in the eyes of Rome. In fact, it gave them an advantage because they didn't have much competition. And so if you had a court Jew and money to lend, you could set the interest rate at whatever the market would bear. And so this was a good relationship for both Wilhelm and Mayer, and they both profited from it, and it was going to get even better for both of them because Prince Wilhelm was heir to a great fortune. He and his father, like Mayer and his father, had been in business together, and Wilhelm's father's business was all about military defense. He was what you might call one of the first defense contractors because what he would do is hire mercenary soldiers. He would form armies of men to fight as soldiers in foreign wars. And since they were from a region called Hesse, these men in the armies were called Hessians. And 
Many of them even came to the United States in those early days when the American patriots were fighting the Revolutionary War against the British. They all, the Americans also had to fight the Hessians because the Hessians were hired by the British to fight right alongside of them. And all of that was orchestrated by Prince Wilhelm's father, who contracted them out to the King of England. But as his father was getting older, Prince Wilhelm was taking more and more ownership over the family business, and he was continuing in the same path as his father. And so while all that was taking place between Prince Wilhelm and Mayor Rothschild in Frankfurt, just a relatively short distance away in Ingolstadt, which is about 177 miles, about 286 kilometers between those two cities. In Ingolstadt was where the university was, where the Jesuits had had control over this university for nearly 200 years. And it was there that they had gone to make plans for other wars that they had ignited, including the Thirty Years' War which was fought from 1618 to 1648. And so, in the year 1773, when the Jesuits had been suppressed, there they were again, back at Ingolstadt University, meeting with all the other Jesuits who ran the university. And that was where they came up with this plan to create this new organization called the Illuminati. And they designated one of the professors there named Adam Weishaupt. He was a professor of Roman Catholic canon law. And that is a very important detail because this position of professor of canon law at Ingolstadt University had a requirement. And that requirement was it could only be occupied by Jesuits. And so since he occupied that position, he had to have been a Jesuit. And not only that, but his godfather, who raised him from a very young age, I think from the age five, his godfather had also occupied that same position. And so he was raised by a Jesuit, and he was put into Jesuit schools from a very young age, and he followed in the footsteps of his godfather to occupy that same position. And so the facts of history show that Adam Weishaupt was a Jesuit. And so many have tried to uh, blame all the troubles of the world on the Jews and say that, well, Adam Weishaupt was a Jew and therefore the Illuminati is run by the Jews and it's proof that the Jews are trying to rule the world and nothing could be further from the truth because Adam Weishaupt was a Jesuit and he was put in that position over the Illuminati by the ones who created it, which was the Jesuits. The Illuminati was a Jesuit organization from the very first day. All it is is another front group, another alias name for doing business as, another way of deflecting everyone's attention away from the Jesuits. And so they selected Adam Weishaupt, number one, because he was a trustworthy Jesuit, but number two, because he was a German. He was a native of that area, which was called Bavaria, and they needed to recruit from that area. They needed to recruit Freemasons. 
the whole concept of the Illuminati was designed to appeal to the Freemasons, including the name Illuminati, which is a reference to the illumined ones, the enlightened ones, because this was the age of the enlightenment, the age of reason and logic and all these ways that man could exalt himself without any need for the righteousness that God requires. And the Freemasons strongly believed in this idea of the pursuit of individual freedom and liberty from the tyranny of the monarchs that had ruled over Europe for centuries. The people were tired of it, and they weren't allowed to speak openly to criticize the government because it could cost you your life. And so that's what attracted them to form these secret societies and to keep them going even after there was no need to protect the Templars, which is where they first started. And the reason why the people were so willing and eager to embrace these ideas of the Enlightenment was because they were so tired of so many wars, centuries of wars, and they knew that behind these wars they were being fought always in the name of religion. And because they lacked the discernment to know the difference between religion and a true right relationship with God, they were ready to give up on the whole idea, and they longed for a government that was separate from the church, to where the church could no longer have such power to cause these wars. And so they believed if they could just set aside all this religious superstition, that they could advance to a level that they would no longer have to deal with all these wars. And so the Jesuits designed the Illuminati specifically to appeal to these people. And they came up with this motto for the Illuminati, No longer will we follow the orders of the monarchs. And so they wanted freedom. They wanted to be free from the tyranny of the church and free from the tyranny of the kings and queens that were in alliances with the church. And so this is a belief in secular humanism. And it is the old deception that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that if man could just pursue knowledge and have the knowledge of good and evil, that he could become like God, which is exactly what the serpent said to Eve. And so that was where this deception started, but it has continued all throughout history. And that's why I showed in a previous program that the Roman goddess Minerva was equipped with armor and a sword for warfare, but she was also accompanied by the owl, the owl that represents that wisdom, that corrupted wisdom, that pursuit of knowledge, that man can achieve virtue, godlike status through the pursuit of knowledge, that man can make himself right. And so, to appeal to that interest, the Jesuits chose the owl to be the symbol of the Illuminati. And so, these evil, wicked Jesuits used these ideas as bait to capture the hearts and minds 
of these poor people who were seeking a way out, a way of escape. And they thought they were finding it in these ideas and this organization of the Illuminati, when in fact it was a scheme. The Jesuits were using those self-interests against the people to lure them in to yet another religious war. Only this time it would be hidden in secret so they wouldn't even know that that's what it was all about. The whole war would be fought through deception. And that's the way the Jesuits have always operated. From the very beginning, they have consistently transformed themselves into whatever shape or appearance is required at the time to accomplish their end goals of overthrowing the government, bringing the government under their control, and bringing all the people into submission to Rome. And so the Jesuits saw in the Freemasons an army in waiting that they could stir to action. And these schemes were not new. The Jesuits, by this time, by 1776, which is the year they formed the Illuminati, by that time they had been manipulating the Freemasons for over a hundred years, going all the way back to where they started in England. And when the Catholic King James was driven from the throne of England in 1688, the Jesuits had to flee the country with him, and so did the Freemasons, and they all fled to France. And it was there at the Jesuit College of Claremont in Paris, France, that the Jesuits actually created Scottish Rite Freemasonry because they wanted to get the Scottish kings back in power in England. They were called the Stuart Kings. And so that was how Freemasonry spread from England into France. And not only were the Jesuits right there with them, but they were the ringleaders. They were the instigators. They were the manipulators. They were the ones that were orchestrating the events to make Freemasonry serve their purposes. And so it was in the year 1688 that the Freemasons and Jesuits had fled from England to France, and by the early 1700s, the Jesuits had spread Freemasonry into Germany. And in the year 1716, the first Masonic Lodge was opened in Germany, in Cologne, Germany. And these ideas took root, and they spread quickly throughout all the cities of Germany. And so by the time we get to the main events of this story with the formation of the Illuminati in 1776, Germany provided the Jesuits with a very fertile place for recruiting Freemasons. And so Freemasonry took on a Jesuit flavor to it, to where the Jesuits began to revise and embellish uh, the storylines of Freemasonry, and including things like the origins of Freemasonry, claiming that it went all the way back to the days of Moses and the days of ancient Egypt, when none of that was true. And the Jesuits came up with all sorts of other enticements, offering the people ways to learn occult knowledge. 
They could learn about astrology and magic and divination and secret spells and the secrets of alchemy, mixing the metals. And then, of course, there was always the allure of being part of rebuilding Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And so the Jesuits used all these things as bait. It was all deception, and it was just a scheme to infiltrate circles that they could never have possibly infiltrated on their own because the Jesuits were known to be Catholics. And Germany, in particular, was heavily a Protestant nation, except for a few pockets, a few strongholds where Catholicism had held out. But for the most part, they had rejected Catholicism at the time of the Protestant Reformation. But just as the Jesuits are masters of deception, they are also masters of infiltration. And those two go hand in hand, don't they? So they infiltrate Protestant circles under the guise of Freemasonry. And this becomes a very important factor because it was through this same vehicle of Freemasonry that the Jesuits were able to manipulate many events in the United States of America. But during these years of their suppression, the Jesuits' primary goal was to regain their power at the Vatican. And so their focus was to use the Illuminati to recruit the Masons. And since they were located right there in Bavaria, which is modern-day Germany, and they were surrounded by that time with Masonic lodges throughout the cities of Germany, they recruited Adam Weishaupt, a German, to be the leader of the Illuminati because he would have appeal to all those German Masons. And by the very next year, in 1777, he joined the Grand Orient Masonic Lodge in Munich, Germany. So he was one of them as well as the leader of his new organization. But their plan was not limited to Germany by any means. In the same way that they had retreated to their Jesuit stronghold at the University of Ingolstadt, they also had retreated to other areas where they still had support. And one of those areas was the island of Corsica, which is part of France, even though it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea. And Corsica was another base of Freemasonry. And it was there in the year 1769 that a man was born named Napoleon Bonaparte. And Napoleon was introduced to Freemasonry by his father, who was a Freemason and also an Italian. And so Napoleon himself joined the Freemasons. And Napoleon was probably attracted to Freemasonry the same way so many others were because they bought into the ideas, the ideas of individual liberty and bringing an end to these corrupt monarchies. And like so many other Freemasons, Napoleon more than likely had no idea that the Jesuits were orchestrating events behind the scenes and that he, like so many others, was being used by them to accomplish their purposes. And in portrait after portrait, we see Napoleon 
with his hand inserted into his coat, which was the symbol to let everyone know that he was a Freemason. But even though he was unaware, the Jesuits were manipulating him all throughout his career and even infiltrated his inner circle with his closest personal counselor, a man named Abbe Emmanuel Joseph Siez, who was about 21 years older than Napoleon. This man was trained throughout his life by the Jesuits and is believed by many to have been an active Jesuit himself. And so at each step along the way, as Napoleon rose to power, it was this man, his personal counselor, who was leading him and guiding him and directing him in each step of his campaigns. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but it's an amazing list when you consider all that Napoleon did was checking off the list every item that the Jesuits wanted to accomplish in their pursuit of their goal. And so let's go back to Adam Weishaupt and the Illuminati. They had formed the organization, they had created their plan, and they shifted gears into implementation of their plan. And for that purpose, they convened, they called for a worldwide Masonic Congress to meet at Wilhelmbad, which was in Bavaria. Now, the interesting thing about Wilhelmbad is it's named for Prince Wilhelm because he owned the property. In fact, it was his summer retreat home, and the meeting was held in July of 1782, which was the time when Prince Wilhelm would be there, and he was there. And so here now we have hard evidence connecting the Freemasons and Adam Weishaupt with Prince Wilhelm. And why wouldn't they meet with Prince Wilhelm? He was heir to the biggest fortune in all of Europe, and he was in the business of military contracts. He was the perfect man for them to be meeting with at that time to implement the plan that they had which called for war, war throughout all of Europe, war that would bring the Vatican to their knees until they would ultimately be forced to reinstate the Jesuits. But this illustration, this painting, is showing Prince Wilhelm's summer home. In fact, the man standing down on the right side is Prince Wilhelm, and the boy next to him is his son. And his son looks like he might be about 10 years old or so, but his son later died. I think he was 12 years old when he died. But what I thought was interesting about that was when his son died, he built a pyramid on his property as a tomb for his son. And that was the practice of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs to build pyramids for themselves because they believed it was somehow going to help them in the next life. And so since Prince Wilhelm did that for his son, he must have been liking those kinds of ideas. He must have been buying into that kind of thinking. And so I think it plays right into his involvement with the Freemasons. 
And since we know that this International Congress of Freemasons was meeting at Prince Wilhelm's home, and we know that he was in the business of military contracts, and we know that they had plans in place to ignite war, and that they were seeking funding for it, it only makes sense that his personal financial advisor, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, was not only aware of this event, but more than likely, he would have been there. He would have wanted to hear firsthand what they were saying and what they wanted to do and what they were asking Prince Wilhelm to do. In fact, since he was the steward entrusted as the overseer of Prince Wilhelm's money, it would have been negligent for him not to know all about what they were discussing. But it goes even further than that, because these plans that the Jesuits laid out included great rewards not only for Prince Wilhelm and his business, but also great rewards for Meyer Rothschild, because wars always present opportunities for making money. For example, the monarchs ruling over these nations were going to be needing money to pay for their warfare. And so there's an opportunity there for someone to lend them the money that they need. And since wars cause disruptions in the distribution of items that people need, essential items that people need to live, if someone had inside information to know what things were going to be happening in the war ahead of time, they could be in a position to provide those things and, and sell those products on the black market and make a lot of money. And it may well have been at this Congress in Wilhelmsbad that the idea was presented to Mayor Rothschild to do what the Knights Templar did by establishing bases of operations in different cities around Europe for the easy transfer of funds for his clients, making himself an international banker. Now, at the time of this Congress in 1782, Mayor Rothschild was already 38 years old and already had three sons, and his oldest son was already nine years old. And since the plans that were being presented there were going to take many years to fully implement, it wouldn't take much vision at all to foresee an opportunity for international banking. But even setting aside the opportunity for international banking, wars always cause volatility, fluctuations in markets and currencies, and those fluctuations are opportunities for someone to make money, especially if that someone knows ahead of time what wars are going to happen and who's going to win them. By now, you might be wondering, how do we even know for sure that the Jesuits had a plan in place and that they presented it at the Congress at Wilhelmsbad? Well, we have a lot of evidence supporting that. For one, first of all, we have evidence that the news of these plans reached all the way to the head of the Bavarian government. A man named Karl Theodore was the elector of Bavaria, and he was informed of what the Illuminati was planning to do. And he was so disturbed 
by what he heard in the plans because they called for the overthrow of governments of Europe. And so he banned in 1784, just two years after the meeting at Wilhelmsbad, he banned the Illuminati from meeting in Bavaria. And Adam Weishaupt was forced to flee Bavaria. And we have more evidence because the following year, in 1785, one of the members of the Illuminati was carrying the plans, their plans, for the French Revolution. This man, while he was en route as a courier, he was struck by lightning. And I'm going to just read this paragraph that describes what happened. And this is from a book written in 1854 by a Frenchman named Edouard Emile Eckert. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of the book because I have it written in French. But he wrote, An evangelist preacher and illuminatus named Lanz had been sent in July 1785 as an emissary of the Illuminati to Silesia, but on his journey he was struck down by lightning. The instructions of the order were found on him, and as a result its intrigues were conclusively revealed to the government of Bavaria. A searching inquiry followed. The houses of Zwack and Basus were raided, and it was then that the documents and other incriminating evidence were seized and made public under the, under the name of the original writings of the Order of the Illuminati. And we have another source written in 1802, so even 52 years prior to that. A man who was a reverend, Seth Payson, wrote a book called Proof of the Illuminati. And in Location 284 of the Kindle edition, he wrote, It is agreed that the papers found in the possession of Counselor Zwack in 1786 and those found in the castle of Sanderdorf in 1787 on search made by order of His Highness the Elector of Bavaria are authentic documents drawn up by the Illuminis expressing the plan and object of the order. It is agreed that the object of this institution is the overthrow of all religion and all government. And so there were multiple occasions where the government of Bavaria was seizing documents and they were all over it. They were trying to do the same thing the leaders of other nations had done to the Jesuits. So the Jesuits, even though they were not operating under their name, they were still getting in trouble for the same reason, trying to overthrow governments. And yes, it does sound weird that they would have a plan for abolishing or overthrowing religion, but they didn't care about that. They wanted to ignite a revolution, to ignite a war, and they needed uh, some rocket fuel in the hearts and minds of these Freemasons to ignite it. And besides that, the Jesuits are all in favor of abolishing all religion except theirs. And it was during these same years, it was in 1785, three years after the Congress at Wilhelmsbad, that Prince Wilhelm's father died, and he did inherit this great fortune. And at that time, his title was changed to Wilhelm the Ninth.
And so by the mid to late 1780s, this devilish plan was taking shape and becoming reality, despite the best efforts of the Bavarian government to break them up, they weren't able to do so. As Reverend Seth Payson explains in his book written in 1802, he documented that Adam Weishaupt escaped to Saxe-Gotha, Switzerland, and while he's in Switzerland, he reorganized the Illuminati to appear on the surface to be composed of legitimate groups, and that included the German Union and the League of the Just, with subgroups of literary societies and reading clubs. He also pursued the Masonic Lodges in France through Count Mirabeau, who formed the Jacobin Society in Paris, which consolidated all 266 lodges of the Grand Orient in France under one head, and through this newly formed French organization and with the help of the money barons, the reign of terror and the French Revolution through 1789 were directed and carried out. There you have the final nails in the coffin where we see the Adam Weishaupt directly involved in carrying these plans through to completion and igniting the French Revolution that started in 1789 and continued until 1799 and included this reign of terror where thousands of people were brought out into the streets and put into the guillotine and had their head chopped off as these people were so stirred up by their goals of bringing down the monarchy of King Louis XVI, who also had his head taken off, and establishing a new form of government that they hoped would give them the liberty that they had longed for. And Seth Payson also explains, by the end of March 1789, the whole of the Grand Orient, which refers to the Grand Orient Masonic Lodges, which consisted of 266 lodges, had the secrets of illumination communicated to them, and by the means of secret committees, every part of this extensive body was in a state of close connection and correspondence, and it was in the power of the prime movers of this machine to direct the force of the whole to any point. And so the Jesuits succeeded in implementing their plan to take vengeance on all their enemies, which was not limited to the Vatican. That was their primary target, to regain their power at the Vatican, but they took vengeance on every leader of every nation that had expelled them in previous years. France was a primary target because France was a primary source of revenue for the Vatican. It was one of the Vatican's oldest and most loyal allies for centuries. And France had expelled the Jesuits in 1594 and again in 1764. And so this was payback time. And you can go right down the list of all the Napoleonic Wars to see how they took vengeance on all their enemies. Spain had expelled the Jesuits in 1767. Napoleon destroyed Spain. The island nation of Malta had expelled the Jesuits that same year, 1767, 
and Napoleon attacked the Knights of Malta and defeated them. Austria had expelled the Jesuits in 1770. Napoleon attacked and defeated them. And in 1792, the Jesuits murdered Austrian King Leopold I by poisoning. England had expelled them multiple times in 1584, 1602, 1604. And England became one of Napoleon's biggest rivals. And Napoleon took the war to Prussia and Russia, which had not taken any actions against the Jesuits, but yet they were the enemies of the Jesuits because they were considered heretic nations. The Prussians because they had embraced Protestantism and the Russians because they had embraced Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So by igniting wars between these so-called heretic nations, the Jesuits had them doing all the dirty work for them, killing each other. And the area that was Prussia is now mostly northern Germany. But Germany, in large part, had embraced Protestantism. And so the Jesuits perceived them as being heretics who had to be eliminated. And so Napoleon's armies attacked the cities of Germany and looted and plundered and burned wherever they went. But amazingly, when they entered Frankfurt, the home of Prince Wilhelm, none of his properties were damaged and none of his possessions were stolen. And that does seem awfully suspicious, doesn't it? I take it as evidence, more evidence, revealing who was behind these things. And as I've shared in previous programs, the Jesuits murdered three popes in a row, and the fourth one they had put in prison until he agreed to reinstate them. And that string of murders started with the murder of Pope Clement Thirteenth, killing him by poisoning in 1769, on the very day that he was to be meeting with his College of Cardinals to discuss the topic of suppressing the Jesuits. And so that bought the Jesuits a little bit of time, but it was just four years later that the next pope, Pope Clement XIV, did suppress them in 1773, and he was soon after poisoned and died a slow, painful death 14 months after he suppressed the Jesuits. So he died in 1774, and then that brought in the next pope, who was Pope Pius VI, and he was another victim of Napoleon's armies as Napoleon attacked the Vatican and defeated the small papal army that defends the Vatican, and in 1796, he had Pope Pius VI put in prison. Pope Pius refused to reinstate the Jesuits, and he remained in prison for the next three years and died there in 1799. And so after murdering three popes in a row, the Vatican went through a period of six months without any pope. They were not able to agree on who would be Pope, and I would suspect not too many people were excited about the idea of being in that position. And so they had what they call a interregnum that lasted for six months in the year 1800, and finally they found a man 
Pope Pius VII. And as soon as he came into power, he did give the Jesuits a little bit of a reprieve by saying that they could operate in Russia where they had been welcomed by the Russian government. But that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted full reinstatement. And so Napoleon again attacked and had him arrested and put in prison in 1809. And he stayed in prison for five years until he finally agreed to reinstate the Jesuits. And so he was released, and in the year 1814, he issued the bull reinstating the Jesuits. And in the year 1815, after some 23 years of revolutions and wars, the Napoleonic Wars finally came to an end with an estimated 9 million casualties. But the Jesuits had what they wanted, and the Rothschilds had what they wanted. Because back in 1801, Prince Wilhelm had promoted Mayor Amschel Rothschild by naming him an agent of the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. And that position gave Mayor Rothschild nobility. From that day on, for the rest of his life, he and all his descendants after him would automatically be recognized as members of the nobility. And this gave him tremendous status with which to go and promote his new international banking business in other nations and with other members of the nobility. And he already had his sights set on building this international banking empire and had already started moving his sons into position, opening branch offices in different cities around Europe, implementing the plan used by the Knights Templar that might very well have been given to him through the Freemasons and the Jesuits. And even four years before the war was over, in 1811, he had already sent his youngest son to Paris to lay the groundwork to eventually open a bank branch there. He didn't finally open it until 1817, but you can see that Rothschild already had this vision for what he wanted to do and was already putting those pieces in place. And so by the time the wars were over, the Rothschilds had risen to international prominence as bankers and were invited to attend the Congress of Vienna where the leaders of European nations met in the aftermath of the war to make arrangements for going forward. And by 1823, a poem was written called Don Juan, in which it mentions the power of the Rothschilds, showing how fast their empire grew. And by 1831, James Mayer de Rothschild became the Vatican's official banker from his Paris branch, which sure seems like more than just a coincidence, given the Rothschilds' involvement in implementing the Jesuits' plans going all the way back to the beginning, back to 1782, when they had the Masonic Congress at Wilhelmsbad. So no sooner did the Jesuits get control of the Vatican that the Vatican makes the Rothschilds their exclusive banker. And by the mid-1830s, other banks were trying to 
break the Rothschilds' monopolistic position over papal finances. And I found that in a book called The House of Rothschild, Volume 1, The Money Prophets, 1798 to 1848, by Niall Ferguson. Also, by 1832, the Rothschilds had become the world's largest bank, ten times bigger than their closest rival. And their influence had grown so much that governments of the world would not make major spending decisions without first consulting the Rothschilds. And I found that to be a very interesting statement because that's exactly what was said repeatedly about the Jesuits for hundreds of years as they would infiltrate the royal families across Europe to the point where no major decisions would be made without first consulting their their Jesuit confessors and their Jesuit personal advisors. But the Jesuits always had a say-so in the major decisions that were being made by these ruling monarchies. And that gets back to my earlier point about how they are masters of infiltration. And so what happened was, after the Jesuits regained control over the Vatican in 1814, the Rothschilds were largely playing that role of personal counselors to these world leaders that had always been played by the Jesuits. And when you combine that with the fact that the Jesuit-run Vatican has entrusted the Rothschilds with their great wealth, and when you consider the way the Jesuits view the world is you're either in total submission to them or you're a heretic who must be killed, well, there's no way they're going to entrust their wealth to a heretic. And that's another reason why I believe the Rothschilds are in total submission to the Jesuits. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their religion It doesn't necessarily mean they're Catholics, because to the Jesuits, it's not about that. It's really more about harlotry in proving that you are a reliable harlot who will sell out and do as you're told for whatever reason, whatever lie you've come under, whatever deception you're under that's causing you to believe that's the right thing to do. It really doesn't matter as long as you're under their spell. And we have yet another clue giving us an insight into the nature of the relationship between the Rothschilds and the Jesuits in that so many members of the Rothschild family had their portraits painted wearing the Knights Templar cross, which is also associated with Freemasonry. And so it's kind of ironic that the Knights Templar, who at one time had this international banking empire and lost it all when they were suppressed, have now been replaced by a Jesuit-run Vatican that once again has the world's largest international banking empire. History is truly repeating itself, and the people who are managing this international banking empire are of the same mind of the same spirit, actually, would be a better way of saying it, as the people who were running it before, the Knights Templar, who amazingly had so many things in common with the Jesuits, because both groups are military orders 
approved by the Pope within the Roman Catholic Church, who both require initiation vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and were both later disbanded by the Pope. So it just seems appropriate that the Jesuits would have control over an international banking empire just like the Templars did. And this Jesuit-controlled Vatican after 1814 has continued giving the Rothschilds exclusive control over papal finances, so it's been a unique relationship that has continued as reported in the 1905 Jewish Encyclopedia, which describes the Rothschilds as the guardians of the papal treasure. So clearly, the Rothschilds got their big payday for their service of harlotry to the Jesuits. But what about the Illuminati? Whatever happened to them? The popular narrative is that in 1784, when the Bavarian government cracked down on them and drove them out of Bavaria, that that was the end of it. Yet there are many other stories indicating that the Illuminati is alive and well and functioning all around the world, particularly strong within the United States. So it appears that they are still operating, but it doesn't really matter to me one way or the other because the Jesuits just change names and create new front groups, new spin-off groups. It doesn't matter what name they operate under. What really matters is are they advancing their agenda? And the answer to that is clearly yes. But I did find it interesting when I learned that if you spell Illuminati backwards and add a .com at the end, it takes you to the United States government National Security Agency website. So I wonder what is up with that. But the power of the Illuminati was in the ideas that they were advancing, the humanistic ideas, and those ideas are still very much alive and very influential today. For example, consider these aerial views of the United States Capitol building showing the streets surrounding the Capitol form a perfect owl that's way too detailed to be just a coincidence. And to help highlight the owl so you can see it better, I've color-coded the different sections. And so, of course, that raises the next question is, what in the world is that doing around the United States Capitol building? Well, that brings up a good point that we will be getting to in future programs. But the main point and the reason why I took the time to study all this is I wanted to know who's really running the affairs of the world today, who's really running the government of the United States today. And after examining all the evidence, I am totally convinced that it is the Jesuits, the same Jesuits, who have consistently caused terrible trouble for the nations of the world ever since they were founded in 1540. And all the evidence shows that they were the driving force behind the Freemasons, behind the Illuminati, and behind the Rothschilds. And by gaining control over the Vatican in 1814, and gaining control over international banking through the Rothschilds, 
has made the Jesuit organization far more powerful and far more dangerous than they've ever been before. And they have only continued to increase in wealth and influence ever since then. And that gets into more recent events that I look forward to sharing in future programs. Well, I think I've gone plenty long enough for one program. I don't usually like to go this long, but I wanted to get it all into one program so that in the future when we're discussing current events and I'm talking about the Jesuits and I know people are going to comment and they're going to think I'm crazy, that I wanted to have something that I could refer them to and say, please listen to this and see what you think. And it took me a few days to pull this one all together And that's not counting weeks of research that I did before that. But my goal continues to be to produce these programs five days a week. Okay, well, I'm going to stop there for today. So thanks for joining me today. And I hope to be back again soon with another program. Until then, so long. (laughs) 